Hello, hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of season two of Long Candor, the podcast wholly devoted to pursuing the legal technology revolution. I'm Rob Hellowell, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Mariano, and we are excited to have you with us today. Uh, before we dive into our next guest speaker segment, we want to bring you one of our favorite parts of this podcast, which is Sightings of Radical Brilliance. Which, as you probably already know, is the part of the show where we talk about the latest improvements in technology or other noteworthy innovations or acts of sheer genius. And uh, Bill, I think you were going to introduce our topic today. Yeah, this is an article that we found on Law.com by Reese Dipshin. I hope I'm uh, I hope I am uh, pronouncing that correctly. Called "Goodbye Email, Hello Brave New World," and this talks about as more clients ditch email, for, you know, for text and chat tools. Uh, attorneys and their law firms are sort of forced to navigate the risks operating, um, uh, you know, characters instead of you know paragraphs, and and can they keep up with the times? Because it's a balancing act, right? And this is what you and I talked about this off the air. It's a balancing act between communicating the way your your client wants to communicate. Um, versus uh, the way that you should be communicating from a legal perspective uh, in, in that everything is discoverable. Yeah, like there's some real conflicts here. I mean, you know, clearly a lawyer has an ethical obligation to keep their records, you know, and, and the information that's getting transmitted back and forth to a client. But at the same time, I think, you know, there was one great part of the article that said, you know, like one of the benefits of, of text messaging specifically is that, you know, it really reduces the amount of email that you receive. You know, and it's just a more effective way of communication. So again, there's kind of like this balance. You know, if you if you have a client that wants to text, you know, it, it's hard to tell them stop texting me. Yeah, you know, there was uh, so there was an attorney, James Paulino from Goldberg Segalo, had an interesting quote. He said, "At the end of the day, attorneys have the ethical obligation to maintain their files to practice law, and you cannot automate the satisfaction of an ethical obligation." I guess you can try to, but it seems from an attorney's perspective, counterintuitive to me. I mean, ultimately what this comes down to is if you start getting text messages from your client, how do you tell them, like, listen, I mean, I guess you have to, right? We need to spit, we need, and this is also referenced in the article, we need to stick to, um, you know, emails in person or telephone. Yeah. Or, or if you are going to text, you know, like, let, let's, yes, casual conversation, you know, let's get together for dinner or something. That's one thing. But actual critical information about your case and, and sensitive data like that should clearly, you know, be handled a different way. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we, we see this a lot, right? I mean, how many times have you and I been on a, a spec call with a client where we're talking about uh, different sources of data and we go through, you know, the, um, the some of the, you know, email, obviously, uh, the SharePoint databases and, and you know, some of the, some of the other, uh, some of the more... Um, uh, the new collaborative uh, platforms that are out there, like the Slacks and things like that, and then you know, and they, they always say yes, 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 and they point to this and let's talk to IT about that. And yes, we have data here. And then you go, what about text messaging? And there's always this awkward silence. <laughs> and, and we know exactly the calculation that's going on. It's like, uh, wow, I've got a lot of other stuff on this phone. Um, and so, yeah, usually, you know, usually people will say, no, you know, I don't have anything on my on my phone or. Well, if I do, you know, it, it wasn't really business related, but, you know, I think the truth is usually, you know, there, there's a lot more stuff there than people either remember or want to admit. Yeah, you could, you could always see that the silence is a regular silence, and then it's the complete blackout silence of a mute button being hit, and then it's a, a mute button being released, and then it's, uh, we don't do business over text. 
Yeah. <laughs> and everybody sort of moves on. But you understand why, right? I mean, you, you don't, it, you know, it, it is the policy of most companies to not do business over text. Um, and But you just, you have to try to enforce that as much as possible. Because ultimately, if you do, it's discoverable. You know, we've talked about this before. Like, this is a tough balance. Like, you know, you want to have policies and you have an obligation to protect data. But you know what? People are going to talk the way they want to talk. And if it's easier to do it through you know, text messaging or through another collaboration platform, I think the sad truth is like, that's what people are going to do. Yeah, it, it, that, that's exactly right. And um, we're, we're, we, we actually touch on this uh, a little bit uh, this season uh, on Law and & Candor, um, and, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more. But it was a really good article. I thought they did a nice job of outlining the balancing act that attorneys have to walk. Um, and uh, check it out when you get a chance. But for now, let's get into the topic of the day and introduce our speaker. The title of today's episode is Cybersecurity in E-Discovery, Protecting Your Data from Preservation Through Production. So look, basically what this topic is about, we all know data security is highly important. It's especially so in the context of litigation. Um, so today we're going to discuss the diverse challenges that arise uh, around data security at each phase of the EDRM. And we're going to get into some tangible solutions for overcoming a lot of those challenges. Um, and to help us sort through this uh, interesting, important, and timely topic. We have a very, very special guest, David Kessler. Uh, David is a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright and serves as the head of data and information risk for the United States at Norton Rose Fulbright, as well as being the head of the or co-head of the firm's e-discovery and information governance practice. David, thank you again so much for joining us today. I know this topic is something that you are very interested in, that you've published on, and that you speak about frequently. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. David, could you actually, could you maybe just give us a little bit more about your background and how you got interested in this area? Sure. I mean, as I started, and I hate to say this, almost 20 years ago now, focused on e-discovery as someone who was involved in working on computers before I became a lawyer, it was sort of a natural fit for me. And as I got more and more involved in e-discovery, I got involved in sort of the left hand of the EDRM, information governance, and that naturally spread to data privacy and cybersecurity, which I've been doing now for well over a decade. Um, and I have noticed that those things are all coming together, um, not just because we have litigation about privacy issues now and cybersecurity issues, which involve discovery, people within who work on these issues at my clients overlap that the issues that we're worried about in data access are very similar to the issues we have in e-discovery. And I guess what really focuses on this topic today is that while we, we have historically been very focused on what are the responding party's obligations to adequately and reasonably undertake discovery, as a business process, discovery is a lot about collecting, copying, and transferring data outside of the organization. And that necessarily creates real concerns about securing that information um, at every stage of the process. And so for the last, I don't know, five or more years, we've been thinking about ways to help our clients make sure that their data isn't accidentally or intentionally taken from them during the discovery process. What's kind of interesting about that too, it's, you know, it's not just data, you know, that's involved. I think, I mean, is it true to say that this is sometimes the company's most sensitive data that's involved in, you know, litigation and investigations? 
Absolutely. I mean, people often say that, you know, you concentrate your crown jewels and then hand them over to your opponents in, you know, significant commercial litigation. And I, and I think, you know, in very sensitive cases, large patent matters, trade secret matters involving source code, there's been a lot of emphasis on these issues because of the commercial sensitivity of that data, not wanting it to be accidentally leaked to competitors. However, I think what, what's changed is with the sensitivity and scrutiny on privacy and what can be done with someone's personal information, we've now understood that almost all cases that involve ESI have these concerns. I mean, and the, and the most perfect example is in the average data load, when I provide email to my opponents, I'm providing them a database of who talked to who about what, when. And that simple set of data would be a gold mine to an, a fisher who wants to you know, know the information to do social engineering to gain access through phishing emails or spear phishing or, or whale phishing. So, you know, even the smallest matters have these concerns. Now, that being said, I want to be clear, whatever obligations everyone takes about this should be reasonable and proportional to the size and scope of the matter, but even more importantly, to the sensitivity of the data involved in the discovery. So it's interesting just going through that and 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 how it affects virtually all all, all types of information. It's funny we do when we do these podcasts. A lot of times we're, they're specialized, right? And we're talking about something that maybe there's a topic that just uh, affects the pharma industry or is a main concern for the financial services industry. Based on what you just said, who who do you think this affects? You know, when we're talking about data security in this regard especially with regard to in litigation and throughout the ERM, is, does it discriminate or does it affect everybody? Actually, I think it, it does affect everybody. And more importantly, it affects both sides of the equation. It affects responding parties and requesting parties. And the reason for that is I think the responding party, the person collecting the data, needs to take steps to make sure that as they preserve and collect data internally, that that data is, you know, is secure, um, that people don't have access to it, that shouldn't have access to it internally, and then they need to do vendor management. You know, the, the people for whom they're going to give that data, whether it's e-discovery vendors or their experts or even their law firms, are taking reasonable precautions to protect that information. And, and I've seen clients have very intricate data security requirements and do auditing and, and, and really force the issue. But that's because they can contract with those parties. Other side of this is the requesting party, because eventually those are going to be productions. And... You know, what are the steps the requesting party is taking to secure that information? You know, the Sedona Conference and its most recent edition of its the discovery principle, the Sedona principles, right, says in um, principle 12 in the comments that requesting parties must take reasonable precautions to protect the data they get. And that makes sense. And now the question is, what does that mean in individual cases? In my view, that's something that should be worked out collaboratively and cooperatively at the beginning of the case so that there's no question if something untoward does happen, everyone understands the precautions were taken and notification is given to the responding party because they have obligations potentially to whoever's data they had to produce as part of the, the discovery process. It's really fascinating. You know, it, it's truly the weakest part of the chain is, you know, I think of like the vetting that we go through with clients and, and you know, both on the corporate, on the law firm side, 
But you're, you're exactly right. You know, you're handing this data over to someone where, you know, you don't have the ability to vet them the way that you'd probably like to. It's, it's, it's just kind of a fascinating aspect of this whole thing. Just a comment on that really quickly. I think the reason for that is historically protective orders have focused on making sure someone didn't improperly use the data, right? They're supposed to use the data for prosecuting their case or defending their case, and that's the only reason they're getting the data in the first place. So they shouldn't use it for business reasons or for competitive reasons. And they shouldn't intentionally disclose it to third parties. Rarely has the protective orders, you know, put in obligations. And I think they are absolutely warranted now to take reasonable steps to protect the data from third party hackers, unauthorized access, you know, have things like encryption, passwords, access controls, those types of requirements. You know, in the olden days, when everything was paper and there was a small volume, you took the file you got from your opponent, put it into your file cabinet, locked your file cabinet, and then when you left for the day, you locked your office, and it wasn't that problematic or difficult. But information age has changed discovery. It's obviously created huge expenses for the responding party, and now I think you're seeing that the requesting party has to invest in appropriate systems to make sure they are securing the data they're receiving in all of these cases. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm curious, David, like if you kind of look at how this plays along the whole EDRM, where do you see the greatest vulnerability? You know, where are the biggest problems right now? Well, I think what you've seen is that the clients who now the law office, you know, the in-house counsel and what they're doing is under the scrutiny of data security and data privacy. And what you've seen is it started on, on the left side of the model and it's spreading to the right. So, you know, first, the, those offices made sure that when they collected data and um, stored it internally, that those systems uh, met their data security requirements. And then they realized, oh, wait, we're giving all this data to these third parties, you know, maybe collected by one vendor, it may be hosted and reviewed at a second vendor. You have, you know, managed review people who are looking at that data. You have law firms, maybe multiple law firms um, looking at that. And so there's now been, you know, vendor management on those pieces that you know i think was a weak link you know you you see all these stories about law firms being attacked by hackers and unauthorized um, users i think sophisticated companies have gotten a lot better at that i think many companies are still working on that issue so it is a point of vulnerability and then now the last sort of step is okay I, i've sort of buttoned it up to the point where i have direct control how are we going to manage the handoff you know, how do we make sure that the requesting party and all of its vendors and third parties like its experts are taking appropriate steps to secure the data? So I think the last part is, is fairly vulnerable now, and many companies are still working to improve their vendor management and to do the appropriate, you know, audits and um, contract review to make sure that their law firms and e-discovery vendors are up to speed one thing we don't like to do here is scare the heck out of everybody who's listening you know the three or four people including my mother and grandmother that are listening to the podcast and scare them to the point where they're like oh man i didn't even think of this and now i have this big problem it's going to keep me up at night so you know what we do like to do when we have an expert such as yourself on the, on the program is to talk about solutions so we talked about how how important this is we talked about how vulnerable some of the different phases of the EDRM are. What are some of the solutions that you've thought about, even used in your own practice to cure some of these vulnerabilities? First, 
as a company who's hiring e-discovery vendors and law firms to do discovery, I'd be working with my data security IT team. My guess is you have standard data security riders for other vendors you use for the, your business purpose. I would work on you know, using some of that, maybe not all of it's applicable, but I, I would bet that there's a lot there that can be repurposed. I would talk to my law firms. I would talk to my e-discovery vendors. Many of them point it as a point of pride about how good they are at this space. And so they'll be able to work with you to get the, the, the appropriate um, reps and warranties and riders in place. And, I, and with respect to you know, the party you're producing the data to, like I said, I think early in the case, I would talk about this being part of the protective order. You know, make sure you have a reasonable and proportionate, not everything is Fort Knox, requirements in the protective order absolutely have some type of breach notification so that if data is accidentally lost or if there is god forbid an attack and someone does gain access or exfiltration of data they have to tell you that that's happened i would also focus on things you can do to um, just as part of your production producing data in native format is generally not great for data security because you change one little thing the hash is different and it can go into the wild. It's very hard to track. I, you know, the idea of using redaction, while redaction is very expensive, it may not be appropriate in all situations. The less copies you have of data and the less places it's in, the less likely it is to be stolen. And so if there's no need to produce, you know, sensitive, irrelevant information, um, it may make sense to redact it. One thing that I think is generally standard in protective orders is the idea that when the case is over that the other side will certify that they've deleted the data it's really important that that gets followed up on in many cases i see people like oh the case is resolved we've settled it um time to move on to the next crisis and the the steps of actually saying okay tell me you've deleted the data make sure i pull it back from my law firms make sure i pull it back from my vendors because if that data just sits out there and doesn't add any value for the company it just becomes a risk um, and so making sure you reduce the number of copies where appropriate, no, not necessarily everywhere. There might be value in, in reusing the data for other cases or other reasons, but if there isn't value in a copy existing, I would look hard at not having that copy at all. This has been a fascinating discussion. You know, I think if I were just going to wrap it up, I, I think most people are aware of the vulnerabilities that exist data security right now and that that's both you know as it travels through the entire EDRM you know especially you know sort of to the right of the EDRM I think that was a really interesting point that was brought out that that's where a lot of the vulnerability lies and I thought you know as far as practical advice which Bill is right that's that's exactly kind of what we try to focus on you know the use of of well-written protective orders to protect data I think is a is a great point and i'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it and we wanted to thank you for being willing to be on this podcast and for your great insights and uh, we really appreciate it thank you very much i appreciate the opportunity to be here